Hello and welcome to the Hormones in Harmony podcast. I'm your host, Vivian Allred, naturopathic nutritional therapist and hormone enthusiast. If you want to learn how to rebalance your female hormones, regulate your menstrual cycle and reclaim your vitality, then you are in the right place. Each week I will be delving into different conditions such as PCOS, endometriosis, infertility, hypothyroidism, acne and hair loss. Stay tuned for interviews with expert guests, Q&As and solo episodes that are all intended to help you move from hormonal chaos to hormonal harmony. If you'd like to submit a question for me to answer on the podcast, then you can email them to hormonesinharmony at gmail.com. The information shared on this podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not designed to replace the advice of your health practitioner. That said, let's get into today's episode. Hi everyone, welcome back to the podcast. I've been following today's guest for several years now. I think she was one of the first people, and I mentioned this in the episode, that I heard talking about PCOS um, and histamine issues. We touched on that a little bit, but I do have other episodes on histamine and some blog posts on my website that you can check out. They'll be linked in the show notes. But my guest is Dr. Brooke Kalanick, who is a licensed naturopathic doctor in the US, and she's a women's hormone expert. She is the co-author of the book Hangry, Five Simple Steps to Balance Your Hormones and Restore Your Joy. And she's also the host of the popular podcast, The Dr. Brooke Show. Dr. Brooke specializes in PCOS, menopause, thyroid issues, autoimmunity, and various women's hormone issues. She helps her patients get to the root of their hormonal imbalances and get back to feeling better with targeted diet and lifestyle habits. She teaches women how to understand their own hormone talk so they can finally work with their bodies, metabolism and hormones instead of being in a constant fight with themselves. She lives in New York City and when she's not busy in her practice or as a mother and wife, you can find her on hashtag mantra walk, which she talks about in her book, or lifting weights. In this episode, we talk about the hormone hierarchy and what Dr. Brooke means by that concept and the order of which you treat them is really important. So if you've got multiple things going on, you've got thyroid issues, you've got autoimmune, adrenal issues, you've got PCOS, how to navigate that and where to start because I understand that it can be a little bit overwhelming. How things like blood sugar and insulin imbalances can affect your hormones, how to tell the difference between real cravings and when to honor them versus when to understand that they're maybe driven by hormone imbalances or blood sugar swings or stress issues or emotional problems. And also we touch on exercise because this is a big passion of Dr. Brooks and we've not really done many episodes on exercise. We touch on that as well and the importance of strength training and walking in particular for women and how things like cardio may not be your friend when it comes to healing your hormones. So I'm really excited to share this. We've got a very similar approach and I love following her work. So I really think you're going to enjoy this episode. Let's get into it. Hi, Dr. Brooke. Thank you for joining me today. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. So could you start off? I always ask my guests about the story. Um, Specifically, I want to know a little bit why you chose to become a naturopathic doctor rather than going down the conventional route and ultimately specializing in hormones. 
well, like many that do what we do, I was in my own chaos, right, with my own health and had to find a better way. So I was um, always on pretty much the conventional track. In fact, I was in pharmacy school when I started having, um, well, to back up a little bit, I got diagnosed, and I say that lightly, I was told that I had PCOS in a very two minute conversation, if that and handed the pill when I was 16. And that was sort of the end of that. I really didn't have any understanding of what that meant other than I was probably going to get diabetes and couldn't have a baby and that the pill was my option. So I took it, I was young and that was, you know, what, what my doctor told me to do. So, um, in pharmacy school, I started just, you know, I was under a ton of stress and I didn't know how to take care of myself. I was probably exercising wrong. I was definitely eating wrong. Um, and so I started feeling really terrible and getting really quite nervous that something was wrong because no one could kind of figure it out. And looking back on it now, I was extremely tired and headaches all the time, migraines, all this stuff, um, skin's breaking out, my cycles all over the place. And so sort of on a you know, family member's recommendation, they, they referred me to their naturopathic doctor. And I was like, okay. I mean, my mom was always kind of into that. So it wasn't too foreign. Um, but she just changed my world just by helping me figure out some really simple, I know now what she did was so basic. I mean, little adrenal support, talk to me a little bit about what I was eating and kind of how that was impacting my hormones, you know, validated the fact that I felt terrible on the pill, but it was like the only thing that I could do. Otherwise I didn't have a period. And so we, we went through all of that and I got some great help from her. And I had that experience with her a couple of times and where she just sort of changed everything for me that was going on. And so I walked away from pharmacy and I said, this is really what I want to do. Um, and I think I, you know, as a woman with hormone issues, it was sort of natural that I would want to help other women kind of get get through that what sort of happened that I wasn't expecting was while I was in naturopathic medical school I got really interested in how women exercise and I think as a woman um, eating and exercise has always been this thing that was about weight loss and this thing that was about being smaller and being different and manipulating my body in some way that I and that often was pretty unhealthy right it was usually under eating over exercising and not really honoring what was going on with my hormones and you know, when I was younger, it was sort of like lose weight at all costs, right? That was sort of, it didn't really matter what it was doing as long as I was getting those results. And so I got a little bit more interested in strength training and sort of just taking a whole different approach to exercise and how you could actually use that as one of our therapies to help a woman get her hormones back in balance. So that's kind of how I ended up, you know, where I am. And I do talk about PCOS a lot with the women that I work with, but, um, you know, I'm 45 now. So I talk more about all kinds of hormone issues and, you know, all of those hormone issues from our younger years really change, you know, as the years go by. And one of the things I've had to figure out how to do to actually be effective at my job is to help women find what works for them and then know when and how to change that. Because as women, what used to work for us doesn't work anymore, right? And things just continue to evolve. And I, I say our hormones are a bit of a moving target. So we have to be able to really understand what's going on with them, understand the signals that they're giving us when things are wrong. And most women just feel like their hormones, they hate their hormones, um, they hate their body, they hate, they hate what's going on, they don't know what to do, and we just kind of ignore the symptoms until it becomes too much and we can't ignore it anymore. But when our body starts talking to us, just helping women listen and get a better understanding of like, this is what it's saying, and here's, you know, we need to start making some adjustments, even if you have found at one time or another what did work for you. Exactly, because what's working now may not work while you're pregnant, breastfeeding, perimenopause, menopause. So I definitely want to talk about that transition and kind of how someone mm -hmm. can navigate that. 
your story sounds very similar to mine and I'm guessing a lot of people are listening and nodding along because you get a lot of people get thrown into it from their own health issues Um, and I think that's what makes people like good doctors and good practitioners is having gone through that rather than having a 50 year old guy doctor telling you that the pill is the answer and he's never had a period in his life and doesn't really know uh, what we're going through but in terms of symptoms you mentioned a few that you were struggling with what are some other common symptoms that women are dealing with that they may think are normal but they're definitely not well, there's a whole manner of stuff that can go on with our cycle, right? So I think women expect to feel bad with their period and, you know, some symptoms are, you know, normal, some changes of it, things that your energy and things like that. But I think so many women struggle with severe PMS, severe mood swings, pain, difficult, heavy periods, irregular periods, um, lots of you know, sleep issues and anxiety and mood changes around that time. And again, you talk to three of your girlfriends and they're like, well, yeah, that's what everybody feels like. And so we mistake this common for normal. So anything that's going on, if your cycle is something that is something you really have to manage, like you have to think about it, it it causes any sort of distress, it causes trouble in your relationships, it makes it hard to work, all of those things Um, and big changes in mood. Those are all really significant. And we could go through those in a little bit more detail if you want. But on like a daily basis, you know, most women don't have enough energy. They're not getting enough sleep. Um, They've got brain fog. They can't think clearly. They can't do what they want to do. They've got mood issues. I think I mentioned sleep. That's such a big one. And digestion stuff. I think we all think... Now we don't, but most people think like, what's well, normal to be bloated after you eat. And it's normal to feel like you need to have something sweet after you eat. And it's normal to have some acid reflux and all of these things. And I mean, I think bloating is one of those things that no one really talks about. I mean, it's not very exciting or sexy to talk about feeling bloated, but, um, and I think women too, don't always, when we say bloated, I think they think of the water retention that happens with their cycle. I'm talking about like digestive bloating. Like sometimes you're gassy, sometimes you're just in discomfort, but there's so much like discomfort, even on a low level that most people feel every single day, every time they eat. And they, again, everybody just kind of thinks that, that it's normal. And that we're not really um, understanding that all of that is telling us so much stuff is going on um, with our gut health, which is profoundly related to our hormones, because that's sort of the uh, like third step, if you will, of hormone metabolism and detoxification. And our healthcare system, at least in the US, is very fragmented. You go see your OB for everything I mentioned about your cycle. And then it's like, oh, you're having some distress after you eat. We're well, going to go see a gastro. And then, oh, your mood. Well, I'm going to send you to a therapist. And it's all, or maybe you've got, I talk a little bit about histamine intolerance. Maybe you've also got really bad allergies. And you don't usually have someone that can pull all that together to say like, well, that your root cause here is probably a digestive disturbance that's causing histamine intolerance and causing your hormones to be messed and causing you stress, which is messing with your cortisol. And it's causing you, you know, estrogen metabolism issues and thyroid metabolism issues. And it all goes back to this one thing. So unfortunately, most people are having to like seek it out and, you know, pay out of pocket to work with someone like like myself, like a functional medicine doctor who can pull that all together. And I mean, I, it's, I'm love what I do. It is unfortunate though, that people have to go out, you know, of, cause our system is just so branched out and fragmented and you're this one woman and all these pieces of you need, you know, it's not that one root cause causes everything, but in the most, in most of the time, there's at least a couple of biggies that are going to move the needle for you in every single one of those areas that you're suffering. 
It's the exact same in the UK. <laughs> the yeah. comp- compartmentalization, um, yeah. it's ridiculous. And I remember being told by a gastroenterologist, a conventionally trained one, that bloating is normal. Everyone gets bloated after eating. And I, was, yeah. I even said, I, I didn't used to have this like six months ago until yeah. I got food poisoning, until I was on antibiotics. So it just didn't make sense. That's kind of like triggered um, a light bulb to go off for me. And when you mentioned gut health, is that part, part of the hormone hierarchy that you mentioned? Or is that yeah. like just one of the root causes that you see contributing? So there's sort of two things that kind of get in the way of the hormone hierarchy because they impact everything. And that would be gut health and inflammation. And when I say the hormone hierarchy, which we can talk about as, as in as much depth as you want, um, the way I laid it out in Hangry is the way I work with my women who come to see me. And it's funny because as a woman, and when you think of your hormones, especially if you're going through anything with your cycle or fertility, or, you know, looking at like perimenopause and menopause, what do we think? We think estrogen and progesterone. So it's all about those female hormones. And we forget about the other ones. And to me, even though those are super important, even though like like estrogen, it's like the woman's master regulator, right? It's so important for our brain. It's so important for so many things, but so it's not that it's not important and it's not on the bottom of the hierarchy because it's not important, but I put it on the bottom of the hierarchy because the things that flow above it are low cortisol, low thyroid, high cortisol, insulin resistance and blood sugar issues, and, the, and then estrogen and progesterone. And the reason is if you come to me and you say I'm having X, Y, and Z happen with my cycle and I don't talk to you about your stress and your sleep and your um, blood sugar and give you an herb or something else to do for your estrogen and progesterone, we're gonna have pretty limited results with that. Now, if you're 20 years old or 25, maybe I can get away with that, right? Like maybe that's a really easy slam dunk. I give you some Vitex and you're happy and home free. That's just not how it usually works because those other hormones have such a ripple effect, especially you know cortisol, thyroid, they have such a ripple effect on all of your other hormones that if we don't address them, it's really hard to nudge just estrogen detox or just boost progesterone when we didn't address these other ones. Sometimes you can get a little bit of results, but usually you're going to get much better results, if any, um, if we address those other hormones first. Now, the things that really mess up cortisol and thyroid and some of those things at the beginning are inflammation, um, which could be from chronic infection. It could be from gut health. It could be from some other things, but inflammation and gut health have their hand in so many parts of our hormone web. So they really are a common place to start. And women think that's funny, right? If they come to me about um, their hot flashes and we start talking about probiotics, they're like, did you listen to what I just said? (laughs) My digestion is fine. But again, you're such an intricate, interwoven system. And there's some really fundamental things that have to be, you know, in place when it comes to Um, are you eating food that's causing you any kind of inflammation? Is your gut really healthy? Is your detoxification capacity healthy? Your stress, your sleep, um, inflammation from any of those things, chronic infections, mold exposure, over-exercising. There's so many sources of of inflammation for us. And those tend to kind of get in the mix, no matter where you're falling on that hormone hierarchy. And I say the hormone hierarchy in that order, because that's how I deal with it. That's not to say that every single woman has cortisol issues. I think people that, you know, they listen to your show or they listen to mine, or they, you know, consume a lot of health information. They assume they must have, um, some of that stuff, right. She was talking about adrenal health. And I know I have that. 
again, most of us do, but I just want, I'm talking to the women out there listening, going, do I have that? Do I have that? When they actually feel pretty great. (laughs) So sometimes maybe you do just have a little bit of estrogen detox, but the point being that as a woman, especially, we really have to address our whole system in like just a more holistic way than going right after whatever it is our ovaries are doing. Yeah. I love that you made that point because I fell into the trap personally, like knowing what I know of just like focusing on, I call them like the surface level problems or like the tip of the iceberg. So it's the things that we can see and the things that cause us the most like concern, whether it's skin or periods, but you need to like look under the surface. And I was spending so many years and so much time on supplements and organic food, just trying to tweak my, um, like lower my androgens. Cause I also have um, a PCOS diagnosis mm-hmm. and I was just taking like salt palmetto and reishi mushroom to try and lower them. And, and it was helping, but I had to be very strict with my diet. I also had an issue with histamine. I think that's how I um, originally found out about your work because you were one of the only people who was talking about that and that made a huge difference. Mm-hmm. And I thought I'd found the answer. So I was just low histamine for a while right. and that was helping. My skin was clear. And then I was thinking, this isn't normal. I shouldn't have to be very rigid and spend 300 pounds worth of um, 300 pounds on supplements every month. And then I had to look deeper and deeper and deeper. My personal root cause was mold illness um, Mm -hmm. at the root of all of that. And the more that I look into that area, that's like a whole nother rabbit hole. And definitely don't have to jump straight into that. Definitely focus on the basics first. But I'm sure you have people as well coming to you just wanting a Dutch test or just wanting you to recommend like a herbal tincture. But that is really focusing. That's like an allopathic conventional approach, just giving a pill for an ill or not actually doing what naturopaths do, addressing the root of the problem. Yeah. And I think that you, the histamine example you brought up is really good. So we've got some women probably listening who are like, oh, this is kind of a little bit new information and I'm going to go look into some of those things. And I think that, you know, might be what's going on with me. And then you've probably got a lot of women that are like, I'm already gluten-free. I'm already don't eat nightshades. I already don't eat this, that, and the other still have all these problems now. And those are the people that tend to come work with me. Right. Cause they're like, I've gone as far as I can go on my own. Um, and that, or they're down to like seven foods that they can eat. Right. And even on the low histamine diet, maybe they read that we talked about that a bit in hangry and gave some causes and, you know, it's a very restrictive diet and there's a lot of quote unquote healthy foods that you can't have, you know, spinach, avocado, you know, there's some of the nuts, there's a lot of things on there, uh, bone broth or collagen, all these things that you're hearing, everybody's trying to sell you, right? These are really, really good. So you can, and maybe that diet makes you feel much better. Maybe, you know, being on that more restrict, or maybe you're on autoimmune paleo or, you know, low FODMAP or something, and you're on some sort of you know, histamine diet is quite a pretty strict one. It's one of the more strict ones of all the ones that are out there. And you can feel better and get some relief on that. But there's a lot of reasons why you can't live on that diet. And I sort of use the histamine diet. You can use it to kind of get yourself out of a crisis, but it's also kind of a diagnostic test, right? If I put you on that low histamine diet and you feel better, great. We know you have a histamine issue. Now the question is why? The answer is not to keep you on that forever because you're going to have low microbiome diversity. If you can eat three different vegetables, you're going to be emotionally miserable. You're going to feel like you can't ever go out and be social, you know, and that's, it's really not a great, um, way to think about it. But I think so many people are caught in that trap right now because they're, you know, they weren't feeling good and they're all over the internet and we try these different things and then you feel a little bit better. So you just want to stay there, but that's a really good example of where getting to that root cause is going to allow you to 
be able to have a little bit more freedom with your diet, be able to eat a healthier, more diverse diet. And that, again, you might need to use, pull that out once in a while. If you get some sort of histamine flare, like I have some genetic predisposition to histamine. So it is something I have to kind of, I use the bucket analogy. Like I have to watch it. I can't eat all the tomatoes and avocados and chocolate in one day, or I'm going to be really <laughs> high histamine the next day. Yeah. Like pounding the sauerkraut and kombucha. Yeah. The, yeah, the fermented foods, <laughs> another one that's like really good for you. Right. But, um, so like, and I just don't take, I don't eat a lot of fermented foods and I just take a probiotic. Now, I'm not saying fermented foods are bad, but for me, that works a little bit better because my bucket can get a little bit higher, which is funny because I, um, I love those foods, but yeah, um, you're sometimes drawn to the foods that you're, yeah, I was like eating all the chocolate, craving the chocolate and no one didn't, my face was full of acne. Yeah. The histamine can be a real component in that inflammation and the, and the skin stuff. And so, yeah, it's sometimes those nutritional pieces. I see so many people on such restrictive diets right now. And it's um, ultimately, that's not the answer. It can be a real insight into what's going on for you. And it's awesome to get some relief, right? If you've been feeling itchy and agitated and broken out and bloated and heartburn and you go low histamine and all those things go away, like that's a real gift, but that's, you know, we want to dig a little bit deeper so that you don't have to stay in that place. It really is a healing tool, but you don't want to stay there because the more restricted you are, the less nutrients you have and the harder it is to, to heal ultimately. Right. Another one of the root causes or part of the hormone hierarchy that I want to touch on is the insulin connection. We've done a few episodes on blood sugar. And I think I mentioned blood sugar balance in pretty much every episode that I do um, because of how important it is, particularly for hormone health. But can you give your overview as to why blood sugar and insulin, um, high insulin levels can affect hormones, specifically conditions like PCOS? Well, so for insulin is, you know, one of the bigger components of PCOS because there is an insulin resistance component for most women, not all. But when you think about what your blood sugar is, it's this constant dance between your food that's coming in and insulin and cortisol. So insulin's trying to lower it, cortisol's trying to raise it, and you're just kind of doing this tug of war <clears throat> all day. And the more balanced it is, the more balanced those hormones can be. So some women think, well, I don't have a diagnosis of an elevated hemoglobin A1C or an elevated um, fasting blood sugar. And so I don't have insulin issues, but other insulin issues. I mean, if you have PCOS, it's at least worth looking at. Some people get a fasting blood sugar and that's okay, but their A1C, or if they use a continuous glucose monitor or even their fasting insulin, someone's fasting glucose might be okay, but it's because they're putting out a ton of insulin in the morning. So to assess your blood sugar on a lab test, you want to be looking at multiple things. You want to look at a fasting glucose, fasting insulin, and probably a hemoglobin A1C. You can also use a continuous glucose monitor. You can also use just a regular glucose monitor. And the reason that I talk about all those things with every woman, again, it's like right up there on the hormone hierarchy, because anytime your blood sugar is off, you are going to be spurring inflammation. You're going to be agitating your stress hormone balance and your blood sugar re regulation. You're going to be creating more oxidative stress. And the way that women can know this is going on and what I talk about in the book is these ACEs variables. So I'm always like your hormones are always talking to you. We just don't know what they mean. We just respond to them, right? I have a craving. So I'll eat a piece of sugar or I'm tired. So I'll have a cup of coffee. Um, or I've, you know, my appetite is high. So I'm going to overeat, even though that makes me feel bloated, right? <clears throat> so you want to be listening to those cues. And the way we talk about it in the book is these variables that I call ACEs. So appetite, cravings, energy, and sleep. 
And cortisol and insulin, that's their language, those four variables. Now, there can certainly be other things like the lab tests, and some women just kind of can't get a read on those things. But cortisol is going to talk to you between meals. So if you're getting like you kind of crash after two hours and you're, you're all of a sudden hangry, you're starving, you're famished, um, your energy is low and you perk up when you eat, um, or you start having like sugar or caffeine cravings, like between meals, when you feel like it's only been like an hour and a half, two hours, I probably should be able to go longer. That's cortisol talking. Um, issues with falling asleep and staying asleep are also often cortisol. And then after you eat, that's when you get the signals about insulin. That's when if you've eaten, but you kind of want to eat more, you're like, I intellectually and physically kind of know that I'm hungry, but I've got this compulsion to keep eating. That can be elevated insulin or higher blood sugar cravings for sugar or caffeine or some sort of like pick me up after you eat or your energy going down. So if you eat, you overeat or you eat, exceed your carb tolerance, then you feel a bit sleepy. So those are all signs that you've got some insulin issues. And all of that can happen with, with a normal blood test too, because it can take some time for you to kind of register on some of those tests as being abnormal, it, but you can kind of check in with all of those things in real time. So I like to do both. I like to have women tune into their ACEs, but I also like to have them take their blood sugar. So continuous glucose monitoring is becoming more popular. Those are rather expensive, um, but that is one super insightful tool, especially at night. A lot of women are waking up in the night and they'll check their blood sugar and it's high or it's low. Um, but as well, you can just get a regular glucometer and take it throughout the day. Now I caution people when they take this not to, not to freak out because they're not going to be probably taking their blood sugar every day, all day, forever. But when you're first starting to like get that information and try to relate it to your blood sugar, your symptoms, your ACEs, you're going to want to take it pretty frequently. So like before you eat an hour after and two hours after so that you can see how high does it go and can I bring it back down and then correlate that with, well, that's interesting. When it goes up to 140, that's when I get a migraine or when it's dipping down below 80, that's when I'm getting those crazy sugar cravings and I feel so, so tired. So getting those other, and you know, I think we think of using a glucometer and a blood sugar monitor, just somebody who's, you know, diabetic or really dealing with a more extreme version of that. Um, but pretty much everybody has some blood sugar issues and it's not always, you know, I always say too, we can talk, I think you were going to wanted to talk about the carb tolerance. Maybe I'll talk about that for a second too. Um, you know, I think that low carb is all relative. And now with the popularity of things like, you know, keto, some people can do that and they can, they're metabolically flexible enough to start burning ketones and fat instead of sugar. But a lot of women aren't. So they try to do that and everything sort of falls apart. And that's where you go back to the hormone hierarchy. So keto might be great if you only have insulin issues, but if you've got issues above that with cortisol or thyroid, maybe that's not a great tool for you, at least right now. And we need to heal some of those things up. Or maybe you don't ever need to use that tool, right? I think we see a diet like that that promises such big results. And we're like, well, I need to be doing that. So I'm gonna kind of power through it. So that's an extreme version of low carb, but you and I with both with PCOS might eat quote unquote low carb. And those might look really different for both of us, right? Cause it would depend on other things. It might depend on food sensitivities. So there are certain carbs that are gonna work better for some people. So let's say sweet potato might work better than rice or pumpkin might work better than sweet potato or legumes might work better than brown rice or quinoa. So some of that is just an experimentation of like, how do I feel when I eat this particular carbohydrate? Do I get sleepy after, do I get bloated? Um, does it seem like I can eat that and actually feel good and more level with my energy and my blood sugar? As well, there's an amount. So 
some people can eat, you know, a half a cup of sweet potato and some could eat two. And some might only like, personally, I can eat about a bite of sweet potato before my insulin starts responding in a way I don't want. I can eat a lot more say of legumes, like that's a better carb for me and they don't bother my digestion. I also do pretty well on a really lower carb, lower carb diet than, than other people. Again, right now, when my cortisol is a mess, it's, I don't do as well. And I have to readjust those things. So everyone, you know, has this unique carb tolerance. It's an amount and a type, and maybe even a time of day. I tolerate carbohydrate better at night than I do in the morning. So I don't have carbs with breakfast or lunch, but sometimes when I'm under more stress, I need to make sure I put some of them in dinner so that I sleep a little bit better because I'm having more cortisol issues during that time. So that's that concept of a carb tolerance. So I just have women walk through an experience experiment of a lot of my patients call it the sweet potato experiment because I'll start them on that where you keep the other factors in the meal, the protein and the veggies and the fat roughly the same. And you start with a few bites and you sort of go up and go back down and see, just see how you respond. And I think that this can feel so tedious for women. It's like, just tell me what to eat. I'm here. I want you to just tell me what to eat. And the truth is um, I know some things you need to eat and then the rest of it, we need to figure out together because it really is quite different. And when women start playing with this, they start, you know, we're kind of trained to think about, um, well, I just need to manipulate my carbohydrate. If I am feeling like I'm getting not the right results, my blood sugar is a mess, or I'm, you know, not sleeping the same, or I'm gaining weight, it's got to be the carbs. And I always, the other macro that we forget about is stress. So remember the other side of that blood sugar equation, it's always cortisol. So your blood sugar can go up because you ate or because you stressed. And we need to factor, you know, that, that in keto is a great example. When I do a ketogenic diet, um, and I don't get enough sleep, I, I cannot stay, I cannot stay in ketosis. Like I'm instantly, um, out of it because from my stress response and it had zero to do with eating any more carbohydrate. And again, that's an extreme example, but women are dealing with that too. And I, you know, I think most of us just for underestimate how stressed we are. We underestimate the amount of demands on us. Um, especially if you're a mother, you know, I think that's even worse because if you're, if you've got a job or you've got children, you need to still show up. And women are really good at that. We are really good at just like, well, I will get to that symptom or it's not by any means life-threatening to feel this tired. So I will just keep powering through. I mean, it is ultimately kind of life-threatening, but we think of it as just like, well, I'm tired and I'm run down and I'll try to catch up later. So we end up you know, I think often underestimating how stressed and how much is going on for us and how much that's impacting our hormones. And what advice would you give to yourself like pre-pregnancy? Because I'm thinking of my future self. I'm only 25, 26 now, but I'm thinking of like my future self. I want to keep my hormones healthy as I get older and have kids. So what advice would you tell yourself or give to someone like me? Well, so for me with PCOS, it's interesting because I had zero trouble getting pregnant. I got very pregnant, very easy with both of my kids. Um, and it was because I think I had 10 years of keeping my cycle in check. So when I was in my twenties, I had, my cycle was all over the place and I probably would have had a really difficult time getting pregnant. I, who knows if I was even ovulating, um, or even maintaining it. So some of that is if you're thinking about what do you want in your future? And that could be either pregnancy or to go through like the perimenopausal time, like gracefully and easily and not have everything fall apart. You want to be really focusing on what can you do for your hormones now? And one of those things, of course, is stress management. So whatever it is uniquely for you that helps you manage stress, whether that's how you conduct your life and how much you put on your plate, 
what are your stress management tools? You know, they're different for everybody. I think everyone's like, oh, you should meditate. Meditation's great. Um, that's not everybody's jam and that doesn't work for everyone. And it often doesn't work in a moment of super high stress, right? You need to figure out whatever it is for you that helps you. And you want to have more than one. So a lot of times what I hear from women, I'm like, well, what are your stress management tools? It's like exercise and drinking wine. <laughs> so, you know, like not to say you can't ever have a glass of wine, but if that's your only tool, what are you going to do every day when you're stressed out? And that's going to impact your hormones. Or if your hormones are kind of reeling from you being overly stressed and every time you get stressed, you exercise, you're going to be, you know, highly likely to be over-exercising and creating more hormone disarray, more inflammation, more oxidative stress. And that's when women are like, I just feel awful after I exercise, but I keep doing it because it's the only thing that kind of helps me keep my head straight. So you want to have lots of different stress management tools. In Hangry, we did two things. We gave something called the five pillars, which are sort of these bigger picture ideas to live your life from. So ultimately they're stress management tools, like opting out of overwhelm, that's like taking things off your plate and not being so much of a people pleaser. There are things like being who you are, expressing who you are, feeling like um, you do the things that you love to do. You make time for play. You feel like you can safely, you know, say your truth about how you feel and what you think being your best friend. Um, you know, so being kinder to yourself, treating yourself like you would your child or your friend or your parent, someone you love. Um, we talk about all of those things as kind of big picture things that you continue to work on and cultivate. And then we gave what we call the 12 tangible tools, which are 12 like in the moment things. Like if you're flipping out from stress, try this breathing exercise or try this mantra or try this, you know, uh, mindfulness technique. So we gave 12 because some, you know, you might find two that you like. I mean, Sarah and I are a perfect example. There's 12 in there and six are from her and six are from me for the most part, because the things that work for Sarah are not the things that worked for me. So, you know, we're just really different people in that way. So, you know, we wanted to give a lot, not that you have to have 12 things you do every day, but hopefully you find one or two, you know, that work for you. And we tried to give like a big array of, you know, options that might work. So, those are all really important. Under The first pillar actually is find and commit to what works for you. And that is something I think is an ongoing thing, but certainly something that if you start that in your twenties, you know, you found a certain way of eating that works for you, a certain way of exercising or a certain way of stress management, or maybe you're the, the friend that, you know, doesn't stay out past 10 because you are somebody who needs a lot of sleep. Um, or you just feel better when you go to bed earlier and get up earlier. And finding those things is one thing. Many women are out there and like, I don't have any idea what I'm supposed to be doing. I don't know what works for me for food or I don't know how to exercise. Nothing seems to be working. Hangry or working with someone obviously can help you find that. But once we find it, that's just the first step, right? What if it's like, I've been gluten-free now for like 15 years and that's something that really works for me. And I don't struggle with it on a daily basis because I'm really committed to that's just, some, you know, so I found what works and then you commit to it in a way that doesn't make you miserable. Right. I always say two women can go gluten-free and one can hate every single second of it and be miserable. Maybe their physical results are good. Like they feel better. Their skin looks better. Their digestion's great. They don't feel inflamed. Their joints don't hurt. Um, their gums aren't bleeding anymore, whatever it is. That was one of my symptoms. Um, but they hate it. They feel restricted. They feel miserable. They feel like they can't eat normally. They don't like answering questions. And people say, well, you don't have celiac. Why do you have to eat this way? 
And someone else can have the same physical results, like all the things got better and they can feel like completely liberated and grateful. Like, I'm so happy that I found something that works for me and I can just eat rice instead of gluten. Great. I can do that. Right. So it's the same thing. It's the same level of effort, but the mindset around that. So that's the commitment to what works for you. So, and then knowing that that will change, you know, as you go through and then other piece of advice I would give a young woman is, um, not to run yourself ragged and you are, you know, running your business over there. And I see that. And I did that. And I've run myself into the ground on multiple occasions and I haven't done it now for quite some time, many years. But I think that again, as women, especially those of us trying to work and have a family, um, we wear that busy stress. I got it all figured out martyr badge of honor, um, pretty easily. And you will crash and burn most likely eventually. Um, so if you can avoid that by doing some of the things I just talked about and just, you know, kind of understanding that your health and how your hormones are doing, you can't really ever live the life that you want to live. If you are ignoring yourself, like I always just say, don't be rude. Like, don't be rude to your hormones. (laughs) Like if they're telling you, Hey, I can't fall asleep. I have got all this anxiety. Your period starts getting crazy. You start having all these symptoms or more pain or more, you know, the cycle is later, or you can't fall asleep the first, you know, that week before your cycle. Those are not, again, they don't feel like super life threatening. They feel annoying, but they will continue. Your hormones will just continue to get louder. And then sometimes it is something that's harder. I mean, the worst thing that we see probably is women go through all this stress and they're not tending to any of those things. And then they trip an autoimmune disease and now they've got Hashimoto's or lupus or rheumatoid. And I don't want them to feel like it's their fault. This is kind of the world we live in. But when we do that and we just ignore all those signs, you know, we, we run the risk of turn some, most things can be reversed, you know, but sometimes we something like that happens when we, after we go through a divorce or we go through um, a stressful pregnancy or fertility treatments, sometimes those things happen and it's just really hard to kind of turn those around for some women. That's really great advice. I'm going to keep that in the back of my mind and I'll not let things, I'll kind of nip things in the bud when they do come up and I'll listen to my body's whispers before they turn into screams. Yes. Do you love coffee, but have been told it's bad and needs to be avoided if you're struggling with hormone imbalances like acne, PMS, and period problems? Honestly, most coffee out there should be avoided because the majority are contaminated with things like mold and pesticides, which can drive inflammation and those feelings like anxiousness and jitteriness after drinking. But what if I told you there was a coffee option that tastes great, is organic and mold-free, and also provides healing properties from reishi mushroom spores. Enter Organo King Coffee, my latest obsession. I didn't drink it for years because it would always wreck my sleep and leave me feeling like an anxious mess. But King Coffee does the exact opposite. Don't worry, it's not one of those fake coffee alternatives made from herbs. And if you've tried other mushroom coffee brands out there, I promise this one actually tastes good and is way better and provides so many more health benefits. If you haven't already heard of the benefits of reishi mushroom or Ganoderma, then let me give you a quick overview. It's known as the king of medicinal mushroom family due to its superpowers such as supporting healthy immune balance and being an adrenal adaptogen. This means if your immune system's overactive due to autoimmunity or suppressed because of things like chronic infections, and you're not really sure if your cortisol levels are high or low, the reishi can help to balance things out and it promotes homeostasis within the body. It's also antibacterial, antiviral, antifungal, anti-inflammatory, 
pretty much everything that we want from a product. Because of its potency, I'd recommend starting slowly if you're someone who's struggling with more complex chronic health issues or is sensitive. If you're thinking, why can't I just take a reishi mushroom supplement? Good question. Organo use a patented process to gently crack the inner and outer shell, offering 99% bioavailability of the reishi mushroom spores. I also explain this as being like the differences with probiotics. The regular lactobacillus, bifidobacterium options that we can all buy readily in health food shops have some benefit, but nowhere near as much as the spore-based probiotics that I use all the time with clients. Wanting to give Organo King Coffee a try for yourself? Visit vivanaturalhealth.myorganogold.com. This will all be spelled out and linked in the episode show notes and also my bio link on Instagram. I really hope you love it as much as I do, but now let's get back to the show. And your book is an amazing resource, by the way, um, and I love the name of it, Hangry. And I'm guessing that's the hungry, angry combination that most people have probably felt at one time or another. I do want to touch on cravings and because it's very common. Some people have sweet cravings, some people have salty cravings or carby cravings. Um, How do we tell the difference in terms of what our body's telling us? between those cravings yeah how do we know if our body like needs those foods so they say with chocolate you're craving the magnesium how do we know whether to kind of give into that or whether it's just an imbalance so cravings are complicated so they can be biochemical like I said if you're getting a craving for something sweet after you eat you probably need to look at your carb tolerance and you need to look at um, your insulin health if you're getting really sleepy after you eat whatever you just ate might be causing you some inflammation that can again kind of spur a craving because most people want to like pick themselves back up. If you're getting lots of those sugar cravings between meals, you might be dealing with some low cortisol. So blood sugar is a pretty easy one to sort out your blood sugar with insulin and cortisol. And I've talked about that now a little bit, but the, they also insulin and a balanced blood sugar will drive the amino acids from the protein that you ate into your brain at a a nice steady rate and make sure that that is getting through. And then you can make your neurotransmitters, right? You can make serotonin and dopamine. So blood sugar is going to, and when you are low serotonin or dopamine, you're going to want sugar. Um, so again, your body's kind of looks at sugar as like, it's a really quick way to get out of the the way that I'm feeling, right? It's quick energy. I'm going to light up some dopamine. I'm going to feel a little bit better. Um, so that's all, you know, again, I always say if you can kind of detach from, like, well, I'm bad. I don't have willpower because I want to eat the chocolate. I am, you know, it's just your hormones doing their thing, right? They're trying to help you feel a bit better. And I think that sometimes helps being like, oh, it's not that it's not real, but it kind of feels not real. Cause it's like, oh, that's just my blood sugar. I want chocolate, but if I eat protein, I will still level my blood sugar and it'll stay more level. Cause like for me, if I eat a bunch of chocolate, I'm going to go up and then I'm going to, then I'm going to go down. And if I do too much of that, I'm going to break out, right? Because that's one of my PCOS things. So sort your blood sugar out first. Um, the chocolate and magnesium thing, you know, I think there's a lot of reasons we crave cocoa. Cocoa is a really complicated plant. It's, it boosts dopamine. Again, it's like going to be it's a neat plant. Um, so if you feel like you've got a magnesium deficiency, take some magnesium. Does the chocolate craving go away? That's another way to kind of diagnose that one. Um, cocoa is a, again, an interesting one. Cause you can use like cocoa powder, um, and to really like boost those antioxidants boost the, um, dopamine in your brain and uh, with none of the sugar fallout. So that kind of an aside, but sometimes people really like to do that when they're having that craving, if they're trying to avoid sugar for some other reason, I always categorize foods as foods that don't work at all. So it's like me and gluten. I just don't ever go there. 
foods that don't work well. This is usually like sugar, dairy, alcohol. There are things that they're not my best choices, but I'm not going to give them up completely. So I'm going to kind of have them on occasion in a way that works for me. And then there's foods that do work for you. And this tends to be the vegetables and the protein and something around your carb tolerance. So if you're talking a lot of times about those foods in the middle, cocoa might be something you could use. Like I just have to be careful with the sugar, but that's kind of an aside. Um, Cravings can also be really stress and emotion related. So if you get the craving for, you know, a glass of wine or a piece of chocolate, every time you walk in the door after a stressful day at work, or every time you pick up your kids and they're kind of driving you crazy, that may have nothing to do with your blood sugar. Now you'll have a better time sorting it out if your blood sugar is level. You know, if you come home and you haven't eaten since noon and your blood sugar is in the tank, of course, you're going to be craving something, right? And you probably have passed the point where it feels like you can make, um, a decision that might be more of a blood sugar balance decision. Um, so look at if it's stress, like if it always happens when your mom calls or it always happens when that one friend texts you, that might be a response for anxiety or stress. And it really has nothing to do with your blood sugar or has nothing to do with your chemistry. So one of the, you know, sort your blood sugar out first, that's going to go a long ways and then see what's left. So now are you just like, well, my blood, I ate a snack at four. So I wasn't in the tank with my blood sugar when I got home at six, but I walk in um, and someone does something or I just walk in and I see the mess or whatever it is and it triggers that. And you're just like, I just need to have a glass of wine. I just need to have a piece of chocolate. I just need to eat some chips. I need, that may be more of an emotional thing. And I can talk about some habit things if you want, but there's, with cravings, they're just so complicated. And I think you have to just take a little time. And I think when we have a craving, it feels immediate, right? Like I need to eat that piece of chocolate now remember that you have an opportunity if you can give yourself 30 seconds even to just sit and kind of look at like, well, where's this coming from? Okay. Well, I know myself and my blood sugar and my blood sugar is in the tank. So it's that, or no, this is every day when I have this meeting with my boss, I want a glass of wine or whatever the thing is that you're craving. So thinking about it that way of just taking a little bit of time giving yourself some space between you and the craving. And it doesn't even mean that you won't have the chocolate. It just means I'm willing to sit here for 30 seconds or 90 seconds to just see what this is about. Um, and then if you do indulge, I like to just remind us to be mindful about it. Like if you're going to have a piece of chocolate, just enjoy it. Like, like if it feels like this is nothing other than I just like chocolate and just enjoy it. If it's like, this is how I'm managing my stress and anxiety. Maybe we could learn something from that and take a, a bigger picture. Look, they, in psychology, they call that surfing the urge, that 30 second lag of just like, can you just give yourself a second to sit with that and no trust that you don't have to respond to it, you know, write that, write that immediate second. Um, I was going to say something else about cravings. I think they're really complicated and we do really want to take the, um, time to learn about them because the, I can sit here and rattle off, you know, craving tips, like we'll have the cocoa powder instead of the chocolate. And that may have nothing to do with that for you. It might have way more to do with your, you know, complicated relationship with your spouse or your kids or your job. Exactly. And it can be on like the minor end of someone just before their period, like wanting a little bit more sweet stuff. And then the other extreme where someone has binge eating disorder, triggered by a trauma or something like that right. so there's like a varying degree um but I love those points and I think people have heard there is. the thing like go for a walk when you get a craving but it really does work like just taking that moment and then if you do actually want that food honoring that and um, maybe understanding why that happened in the first place but then not beating yourself up afterwards 
Yeah. And I think like, so if I am stressed out every day when I come home and I eat chocolate every day and then I break out because I have insulin resistance and PCOS and histamine issues, then I'm more stressed in the end because I don't like how any of that feels. Um, so this immediate need, I got that dopamine hit and I got that immediate need met, but my ultimate need got worse, right? So if you're someone who can have a piece of chocolate every day with no fallout, have a piece of chocolate, right? Like that's, um, but if you're someone that triggers binge eating or like for me, if I start, so we just went the holidays, right? So I know when there's more sugar around, I just have to be careful and I don't restrict everything. I, you know, I, um, my grandmother just passed away in October. So I made her Christmas fudge. There's not usually fudge around my house, but you know, I didn't not have it, but I made sure I did all the other things, right? I never had it in the morning or I would be eating fudge all day long. Um, I usually had it before a workout. Cause then I'm like, I'll just feel less. My blood sugar goes up and I have a harder time getting it down. Cause I've got some insulin resistance. So I, you know, if I had a piece of sugar, it was, you know, at like three o'clock in the afternoon and then I did a workout. So those were, you know, there's some ways that I can, cause I do have a lot of fallout from sugar. So if you don't, then maybe you don't need to worry about it so much. So I think this is like, this conversation becomes very general for most people of like, well, sugar's bad. So don't have it. Um, gluten's bad. So don't have it. I think we really have to look at what is this? Why do I crave it? Can I understand that a little bit more? Do I feel like it's an issue? Is it making me gain weight? Is it making me break out? Is it making my cycle late? Is it making me bloated? Does it give me a migraine and I'm still doing it? Then you want to look at, okay, well, there's more to that there um, because that immediate reward of getting the sugar and the little dopamine hit is one thing, but the ultimate fallout isn't a reward, right? That's going against everything else that I'm trying to do. And sugar is one, but I mean, we see this a lot with women drinking wine too. It just becomes like a really go-to um, thing for managing stress and anxiety. And, you know, some, I mean, personally, I would take a glass of wine over a cookie any day of the week, as far as my preference, you know, so I think everybody kind of has those things that um, are, maybe they work again, like they don't work well. So yeah, but if there's something you want to keep in your life, um, or again, maybe it's something that really doesn't bother you a whole lot. So, you know, if someone can get away with a piece of chocolate every day, and it doesn't make them happy, and it doesn't trigger anything else, then maybe that's just fine, right? And for someone else, the fallout and the domino effect of that might be much bigger than a than a piece of chocolate so not just thinking how it's going to make you feel right now how it's going to make you feel tomorrow how it's going to affect your cycle potentially and sometimes you choose to go ahead and eat the cheesecake and it's worth it and sometimes it's not really worth it so I always like play with the pros and the cons and I remember someone said once to me that um, I had a eating disorder or like disordered eating because I, I was talking about how I was going to a restaurant and having desserts and maybe some um, bread and things like that. And I said how I was going to go work out afterwards and go for like a brisk walk around my neighborhood to kind of support my body. But they were saying, oh, that's so disordered that you have to like burn off the calories. But they didn't understand that I was doing it from like an empowered place. I knew that mm -hmm. I needed to get my glutes and my leg muscles moving to uptake the sugar. So I just thought that was an interesting point as well. You can eat the things, but you can also support your body. Maybe take some berberine, maybe some magnesium, yep. make sure your sleep's good that night. It really does help. And I think that is how, how you do what you do is what matters most. So if you 
had the thing and then you're like, oh my gosh, I, and you start hating your body and you start freaking out and you're like, I have to go work out. Now that's a very different place than I know my body doesn't do great with this, but I do want to have dessert once in a while, or I do want to have a glass of wine once in a while. So he, these are the things I do to just have it less of an impact. And that to me doesn't sound disordered. That sounds like, um, you know, what works for you. You know, there's things that don't work as well, but you also don't want to go without them for the rest of your life. So and then there's probably things that you avoid altogether, right? So there's just, to me, the fallout from gluten is just not worth it. Um, but there's some of those other things that have less fallout, but they're not totally benign. And so if there's a way to kind of work around that, how you do it matters. Like even, like I said, going gluten-free, if you're going to, if that or dairy-free or whatever it is that you've discovered that works for you, that's a little bit of a challenge. If you can't find a way to do that and feel good about it, what's worse, the stress and misery from that thing or the inflammation that it caused from both those cause inflammation, right? Both those are bad for your health and your hormones. So I think that how we do what we do matters. Same thing at the gym. You can go to the gym and be there in a punishing mindset, or you can go there being in an empowered mindset. You're going to work out both ways. One is going to make you feel a whole lot better. And I've been in that disordered place. So I know exactly what you're talking about with food and exercise. So with what you've been through as well, in terms of starting off in the fitness world and kind of that being your entrance into nutrition, what are your thoughts now on exercise? Because it is a stress at the end of the day. So is there like a general recommendation or a general type of exercise that you'd like to recommend to women? Or is it again, completely different? Well, so there's a few basics that I think all women should, should try to do, but I, I think exercise is what I, I would say. Exercise is very powerful medicine and the dose needs to be right for you. And your workout might be very different than mine. Your workout might look more like mine did 10 years ago. So it's going to change. And again, it goes back to that hormone hierarchy. So what I, the most wiped out women, the ones with the most inflammation, the most like thyroid issues, autoimmune stuff, they may have to temper some of this, but most women can walk. So I recommend everybody, we have five habits in hangry, five walks a week. So that is a like moving meditation. It's this bipedal movement our bodies were sort of designed for. And so we sit too much. There's a lot of reasons why walking and it's a hormone normalizer. It doesn't exacerbate cortisol. It can lower cortisol, but not lower it so much like a high intensity workout could wipe you out. Right. Yeah. It's walking is a great adaptive. I think that's a really good analogy. So I like everybody to walk and we usually recommend people start at 45 minutes a day. Some people, you know, again, sometimes I'll have a woman who's got like a lot of inflammation or exercise intolerance. And she's like, I can't walk more than 30. So whatever it is, if that's you, and you're in that really delicate place, stop five minutes shy of what wipes you out. And that's what you always want to do with exercises. Stop shy of what wipes you out. So maybe that's 10 squats, or maybe it's a full workout, or maybe it's an hour long walk, or maybe it's, you know, 20 minutes. And we work on some of those things in the background so that you can have more endurance, but the walking is the first place to start. And then the strength training. And I recommend women strength train three, at least two times a week, ultimately three. Now that can look very different. That can be like a Metcon CrossFit wipe you out in a puddle of sweat, or it could be uh, powerlifting, or it could be, you know, bodyweight squats. That is going to depend on where women are at. And in Hangry, we give like a template that's almost like a Chinese menu. It's like you pick from these different categories and try to hit these things. So we try to do some of those bigger lifts that hit all, all the bigger muscles and build some real strength and build some good bone density. And 
when you're training like that, strength training is going to build more mitochondria. It's going to reduce oxidative stress. If you do it right, it's going to decrease inflammation. If you do it right, it's going to build new tissue and your muscles. That's the reserve of your metabolism. Like you were saying with your walk, that's there to soak up the sugar, right? That's there to manage your glucose. That is there to help you be more insulin sensitive, not to mention not break a hip, right. Or like be able to take care of yourself when you're older or to pick up a big bag of dog food, right? Like the, whatever it is you have to do in your daily life, strength training is going to help you. There's a whole other like mindset component too, that I feel like when women get strong, it really changes so many things in their life. So strength training is a core component, but it really depends where you're at. So when we gave the strength training template in the book, like squats, presses, pushes, deadlifts, those are the things that are up front. And I want women to focus on those. And that may be for some woman, uh, you know, squat with a barbell on her back. And for someone else that might be sitting up out of a standing up out of a chair and being able to do that strong. A lot of women are going to start like with a goblet squat where they're holding a dumbbell or something in front of them and really work on their core and their position, whatever that squat is for you. So, and some of those, again, that kind of those bigger exercises. And then if you are in, you know, you're not dealing with a lot of hormone issues or maybe weight loss as a goal, or you just want to get in more um, training, then we have like a second section of that. That's a little bit more of like a circuit training where you're hitting some of those accessory things where you might be um, targeting your glutes or working on biceps or some shoulders, any of those other pieces that might be important for you. And you can kind of walk through and create your own workout from that template. The next thing is cardio. So cardio tends to be where women go first over strength training. Um, It's not necessarily more effective. Um, It is not great at putting on muscle and it can be tough on your hormones. So just like I said, you could do strength training wrong. It's really easy to do cardio wrong. A lot of women are just overdoing it, whether they're doing a spin class where it's an intense and long, or they're just focusing on high intensity training where they're just doing quick, you know, bursts of hard work and not a lot of endurance. So that has its place that can be, you know, it can be helpful with weight loss. It can be helpful, you know, to go for a bike ride after you, you know, eat a piece of cake, like we were talking about with the insulin resistance, it has its place. Some people love it. It definitely boosts serotonin, definitely improves some of your cardiovascular health. Those are all good benefits. It's just this tool that women especially get, can just really abuse. And I think most of us were either raised to run or cycle spin or do like long classes. I mean, it does, that is really where women's head goes to for exercise. So I, to me, I feel like cardio is not bad. It's just a tool that can get easily abused. Um, and it's one that may not be as necessary. So there's the whole honoring your hormones piece of it. Like we want to make sure that whatever you're doing for exercise is, you know, the right dose for you and the right type. Again, it's, it's powerful tool, powerful medicine. And then also there's only so many hours in the day, right? So if you're not like working on weight loss or you don't love cardio, like focus your efforts then on the walking and the, and the strength training, because maybe that's all you have time for. So that's kind of how I categorize that in that order. So I don't, it's hard to tell any woman not to exercise, but I hear that all the time. And, you know, cause most of us need to keep moving and use our bodies and keep them strong and healthy. But what I hear so there's that side of it, right? Where a woman is overdoing cardio. And I think most of us have been guilty of that one time or another. Mine was running. That was like the thing I love to do to death in college. Um, wasn't working very well for me, but um, so there's that end of the spectrum. And then there's the woman who's like, well, uh, my thyroid's a mess. My adrenals are a mess and I've got autoimmune disease, I've got Hashimoto's or whatever. And I've been told I can only do yoga. 
I can't do anything else. And so then they're being treated kind of like they're made of glass because when they work out, they get wiped out. So they're just sort of sitting there. Um, and sometimes, you know, exercise makes us feel better. Exercise, you know, makes us feel better emotionally, mentally, you know, most people feel better in their bodies when it's moving and when it feels strong. So you just, to me, we can use strength training and walking to help heal you, or we can use it to drive you into the ground. So there may be some things you have to shore up. You need enough um, thyroid hormone, or you're really not going to do well exercising. You're going to get injured. You're going to get tendonitis, or you're going to feel really wiped out. The other thing, low cortisol is also going to be hard if to exercise is not so much the heavy strength training, but it's going to be really hard to do anything with any metabolic demand. So the CrossFit, the high intensity training, the spin classes, those are going to be really hard on you with low cortisol. And to be honest, you're not going to get the benefits of the high intensity stuff with low cortisol because the benefits like the fat burning effect of, you know, a short Metcon needs some cortisol. So you're probably going to be in that boat where you're like, I do it, but it's not, it makes me feel terrible and I'm not getting great results. And then there's the other group of people is there maybe their thyroid and their cortisol are okay, but they still feel just super, super wiped out after a workout. Like maybe it takes them days to recover. I'm not really talking about just being sore. I'm talking about like you physically are exhausted. In that case, we're looking more to oxidative stress. So, which could be part of autoimmune, could be part of like a chronic infection. Um, there's a number of things that can add to that burden. But basically when you exercise, you, you generate a lot of free radicals. And after that, because you're making, you're utilizing some oxygen, your mitochondria are going to work. Your body should sort of have a flood of antioxidants after that. Um, and if you can't do that, if your antioxidant reserves are wiped out because you've got autoimmunity, or maybe you're going through them because you um, are, you know, your blood sugar is all over the place, or you're not getting enough sleep, or you are deficient in some nutrient or you just in some way or another need to support your antioxidant status, you're going to be one of those ones that feels very wiped out from, from exercise. So all of those are problems we can deal with. And to me, it's rare that a woman just has to do absolutely nothing. Um, but we always want to stop again, five minutes before what wipes you out or a few sets before, like if you can do 10 squats, but you can't do 15, then you do 10. Um, and my, what I say to women always is I want to your next workout to me is more important than this one. You need to be able to be recovered enough to continue to train and continue to work on your strength and continue to be mobile and be strong. It's what's way more important than any one thing you do today. That's kind of hard. We usually are like, just got to get that workout in. It's like what athletes say. It's not necessarily about the workout itself. It's about the recovery. And they spend like 20, the rest of the day sleeping, yeah. eating good, doing the saunas, all of that. Um, and another condition would be hypothalamic amenorrhea. I think a lot of people yep. are told like lay on the couch, eat thousands of calories worth of ice cream and pizza. Um, and for some people that works, they get the period back, but do they come out of that like more inflamed, like stagnant lymphatic um, fluid? So that it comes with potential downsides as well. But I think yeah, and that one, you know, the cortisol is going to have a big component yes. in, in that one too. Um, yeah, that, that's always a tricky one because it always requires usually a little more food um, and a lot less stress. Yeah, usually the opposite of what we're told. We're told like for any, pretty much any hormone imbalance, it's that you're not exercising enough and just yeah. eat less calories and then you'll be fine. But as a lot of people, they actually need to do less exercise and they lose weight and feel better. So I, I also attract the people who are doing, quote, all the right things, the exercising almost every day. 
And I'm usually telling them like back off a little bit, not completely. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they don't need to do the full hour, hour and a half strength training session. They just need to do 20, 30 minutes so they can yeah. still move if they enjoy it. Um, but just not as long, not as intense, have more rest, all of that. Yeah. Amazing. So last few questions now, Dr. Brooke, before we finish up, um, are for you personally. So first one is what's something that you're into lately? So this can be in the health space or it can be completely random, something that you're watching on Netflix. Oh gosh. Um, so lately, since it's, we're recording this around the new year, um, my 2020, like many of you, my whole life just got turned upside down in so many ways. Um, and even before that, just having little kids, uh, I have it's been probably a solid year that I have gotten out of my like morning routine of being up before my kids and taking the time to be more intentional and conscious about who I want to be today and what am I creating in my life. Um, So I'm very into getting back into that. Um, That's always something that's really helped me. It's something I really believe in. And it is very much something that just went out the window with 2020. So um, I have more space too. We lived in a Brooklyn apartment before all four of us, my two kids and my husband, um, and we live in a house now. So that is also really nice to feel like I can get up in the morning and I have somewhere to go. That's not like right next to someone who's sleeping. (laughs) And it might feel like you're taking, like you have to wake up five minutes earlier or put something on hold for a little bit but it really does make a huge difference and influences the rest of your day so I love my morning routine too yeah and it's so easy for me to get up and just start working just be like oh I gotta get on my email and I really have to or my or pop on social media and I really have to caution myself not to do that but I bet you bet you find that you're more productive when you do the morning routine Oh, and I think we're all like that, right? Sometimes there's just some things that really work for us. So it's part of that finding and committing to what works for you. And I just have to recommit to that because sometimes we just get something happens and we, most of us have some things that we know really help us that we, that we don't do. And this one has definitely been mine. I will say one other one that I don't do very well at is drinking water. And I don't know why, I don't know what my hangup is about that, but I have to be really intentional about that. And after all these years, if I'm not, that just falls by the wayside. So putting some of my good habit advice to use this year has been my recent kind of obsession with (laughs) what do I need to get back? We know all of this stuff and we're like so focused on like this fancy complex new supplement or something and we forget like oh I'm actually not drinking enough water. (laughs) Yeah like I'm so good about working out and it's like sometimes I get to my workout at like three and I'm like that's the first time I've had water today and (laughs) and that's terrible. So that's my that's one of my things I've been working on. Great I need that reminder as well so thank you. What's your go-to breakfast? So you mentioned before that you do better on like a lower carb breakfast sometimes and then kind of build up your carbs throughout the day or post-workout. So what do you go for? Um, or are you someone who doesn't have breakfast? Um, so I do, when my cortisol is okay, I do do some intermittent fasting. So I'm usually not eating until 10 or 11, which is not a ton of fasting, but that usually works pretty well for me just to have that longer window, um, away. Um, but even if I eat earlier, my breakfast always looks just like dinner. So it's either leftovers or I'll do soup or I'm like just having some sort of cooked protein, a chicken breast or ground meat or something. Um, I like eggs. I tolerate them well. They do not they don't last very long for me. So if I have, I could have a three egg omelet and I'll be hungry in an hour and a half. So I just do much better if I have just a, a other kind of protein. And I made that switch, I don't know, probably 15 years ago, maybe not quite, maybe 10. And it, you know, it wasn't super hard for me to get my head around, but a lot of women really struggle with that idea of more protein for breakfast. But 
it does a couple things. I think for me, my energy, my blood sugar, my cravings, all of that is just handled when I start breakfast, when I start off with a like higher protein breakfast. And that can be eggs for some people, just for me in particular, that, that doesn't really do it for me. Uh, that's just not very satiating for some reason. A lot of times there'll be vegetables. So I'll have a salad or something with, with that too, which is also weird, but I think it just frees up this idea that you need breakfast ideas. Like women are always like, what should I have for breakfast? And I'm like, what'd you have for lunch? What'd you have for dinner? It is really freeing to just be like, it's just another meal. And then whatever you made the night before can work. Um, I do okay with leftovers. Some people with histamine don't, um, but like one day is usually fine for me. And so whenever I cook, there's four of us, but I cook for six and then my husband and I have breakfast the next day and we don't have to cook that again. And I think the weather in New York's the same pretty much as the UK. So it's winter, it's cold at the moment. So I can't think of anything better than nice warm breakfast. Yeah. Last question is where can people find more from you online and where can they grab your book? Yeah. So the name of the book is Hangry. Um, so you can find Hangry anywhere you get books, Amazon um, bookstores that that is all over. It's um, in audio, Kindle, all the things. It's been out for um, a year now. So um, they can find Hangry wherever. Um, I am at betterbydrbrook.com. That's my website. So if you wanted to work with me or check out my blog or look at any of the things that I've got going on there, um, Instagram and Facebook, I'm also at betterbydrbrook. And the podcast is now just me. Sarah has um, stepped away to kind of take care of herself and her family. So it, the podcast has always been called The Sarah and Dr. Brooke Show. And now it's just The Dr. Brooke Show. And you can find that wherever you get your podcasts. And that's right. weekly. Yeah. And if you like this one, you're going to like yours as well, because it's kind of similar. We have a similar approach, I think, to women's health, nutrition. Um, and I really enjoyed chatting with you today. This has been amazing. Oh, good. Thank you. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did and you would love a free copy of my hormone friendly recipes guide, please leave me a rating and review and I will email you a copy as a thank you gift. All you need to do is screenshot your rating and review and send it to me at hormonesinharmony at gmail.com. This guide contains delicious gluten, dairy, grain and refined sugar-free recipes and all the meals contain specific hormone superfoods. Don't worry, there are no boring salad recipes included. Come and say hi over on Instagram at Viva Natural Health as I share a ton of free content every day and you can get to know more about me and how I stay hormonally healthy. If you haven't already, check out my website, vivanaturalhealth.co.uk, for my blog and many free guides which cover everything from clearing acne to gut health and hair loss. If you're ready to identify and address the root causes of your hormonal issues, whether that's acne, PMS, PCOS, hair loss or problematic periods, take that first step today and apply for an enrolment call on my website. We'll use this call to discuss the steps that you need to take in order to achieve hormonal harmony and how I could help you get there. See you back here next week for another episode.